0: Lisa and I, uh, two weeks ago, we were in Knoxville. Uh, we were there for our son Darden's follow-up appointment. I think, I think most of you know he was in a motorcycle accident, February 28th, a, a near-fatal accident, um, had a lot of surgery. And so he had his follow-up appointment there at the, at the UT Med Center where he was in that trauma unit for uh, or at the hospital for a week and then had surgery there in the trauma unit. So we go for the follow-up with Dr. McDowell. And like, you know, you guys go to the doctor, typical, you go in in your waiting room for a while, then you go back to the room where you're going to see the doctor. And we were no longer in there for maybe five minutes, and the nurse comes in and says, "Darren, we need to take you because we want to do some x-rays, which makes a ton of sense. He's got three broken legs in his right leg, and they got rods in there and a broken wrist, and they're going to take x-rays. So 15 minutes later, Dr. McDowell comes in and he's holding these. You know, he's just holding some eight and a half by eleven sheets of paper like this. But on those sheets of paper, I mean, black and white, but HD pristine. You know, <laughs> there's his leg. Look like at that rod. Oh my gosh, you got a Phillips head screw in there, and you can see the threads on it. You know, it's just absolutely magical to, to to a layperson. You know, I know those of you in the medical community, you look at these things all day long and you're bored stiff. But when we look, when I look at it, I'm amazed that. Oh my gosh, I can see with absolute clarity what cannot be seen with just the naked eye. Just a little bit of technology and boom, it's there. Now I want you to think about your, your Bible in, in, in a similar way. It's like your Bible, it's almost like a spiritual x-ray. When you and I look at the world and everything around us through the lens of the Bible, the Bible allows us to see what we cannot see with our physical eyes. That's the truth. And according to the scripture, that which we can't see is more valuable than that which we can see. It's what Paul was talking about when he wrote to the Corinthians. They're in a very tough place, and he says, "Look, don't lose heart." 2 Corinthians 4:18, he continues, "We look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen." But the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Now, you take that value statement, temporal and eternal. What's the difference between these two? Is it this much? Is it this much? How much is it? It's infinite, infinitely more valuable that we see and know what can't be seen with our eyes. Now, we are starting a book today, the book of Esther. And it, more than probably any, maybe any book in our Bible, demonstrates this X, X-ray quality of the scriptures that allows us to see what we can't see with our physical eyes. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. We're going to be flipping through the whole book, but go ahead and start at Esther chapter one. It's Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. If you get to the Psalms, if you get to Job, you've gone too far, back up towards Genesis. Esther, the, uh, Ezra, Nehemiah, and then the book of Esther. I, I do believe it's an accurate statement to say this. To live with hope requires the ability to see what we cannot see with our physical eyes i believe that to live with hope requires that we see what can't be seen there are things you all that have happened in your life and in mine this week life happened and it's right there and, and, and life conspires to destroy hope because things happen and you go, God's not in control. He can't fix it. This is not going to work. Everything's, you see, that's life around us that we see. And what's required for us to live with hope is to see beyond life to the, you'll hear me say this, the invisible hand that moves life in your world and in mine. The book of Esther equips us to see that. Now I'm going to do an introduction today. That's all I'll do. I'm going to do it in three categories. So those of you that kind of outline mine, think of it this way. I'm going to talk about the historical setting. I'm going to talk about the story. And then I'm going to talk about the lesson, historical setting, story, lesson. There's two lessons, but it's really one wrapped up and it carries all the way through the the book. You'll see that when I get to the back end. Uh, We want to start with the uh, historical setting because anytime we start a new book in the Bible and we're studying it, y'all we've got to answer the question where does this thing fit in where does this story fit in the story of the Bible not just where does it fit in our Bibles themselves now broad category and again this is some 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 review and and, and, and helping us as we prepare to see this setting when you think about the story of the Bible, you can think about it, and this is not getting all of it, but think about the Old Testament in 500-year chunks, if you will. And so just put this in your mind's eye that we know that, that you know, there's Abraham, okay? He's back here at, at 2,000. If, if, uh, if we come over here and here's the birth of Jesus, you back up 2,000 years, okay? Here's Abraham, 2,000 B.C., and then, if you go 500 years toward the time of Christ, the next person you're going to hit would, would be the person Moses. You kind of know the story of Moses. So you go Abraham, Moses. And then you get right here, you're about 500 years prior to Jesus, and you, you're getting to David. Is this making sense? So this is our, 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 our timeline. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. 2000 is, is, is Abraham, 1500 Moses, 1000 is David. I'm sorry, 1000 is David. And then 500 years before the time of Jesus is Esther. Ezra Nehemiah. Okay, so so there's Jesus, here's Esther, right here about 500 years before the time of Christ. At the time that this story occurs, the nation of Israel has been in a civil war for centuries. Northern kingdom, southern kingdom. I know this is a review for some, for others maybe not, but when David established the kingdom, y'all, it was one kingdom as the nation of Israel. So we know it, okay? But his grandson Rehoboam blew it royally and split the nation. And so for 400 plus years, the the nation of Israel is actually two warring kingdoms, civil war. Northern kingdom, southern kingdom. The northern kingdom would be the 10 northern tribes, okay? And then the two tribes in the south would would be Judah. Now, this has always confused me. And I don't mean to confuse, but it's always confused me because they call the northern kingdom Israel and the Bible calls the southern kingdom what? Judah. Yeah, and I'm always going, wait, I... I thought the whole thing was Israel. Well, it is, but when they're divided, it's Israel and then Judah to the south. Now, God had told Moses, go go all the way back to to, to Moses, and and God said, look, if you'll go in the land and walk with me, everything will go well. If you go in the land and forget me, it will not go well for you. Well, they got in the land, and they did not walk with God. They rebelled, and it did not go well with them. And that's where we are when we begin the book of esther Uh, they followed other gods there was just unbridled idolatry in the nation god sent his prophets come back they would not they did not and so in you don't have to remember these dates 722 bc the assyrians if you got northern kingdom southern kingdom the assyrians obliterate the northern kingdom okay about 150 years later the babylonians take the southern kingdom and take them into captivity you with me so now they're gone so to speak the, the the southern kingdoms in captivity in babylon and i want us to think about this historical reality in terms of redemptive history and here's what here's what i mean by that let's take all that history let's put it into god's promises you remember when we would studied abraham rob had this statement that we used all the way through abraham that, that with abraham God's original intent was re-expressed. So all the way back in Genesis, in the book of Genesis, God desired this. And then you get in Genesis to Abraham and and God reiterates it. That God's intent is to have the people of God in the place of God with access to the presence of God. Everybody with me on that? That's God's intent, you all. And when I say that, if you kind of go in your mind's eye, that sounds like Eden. That sounds like Eden. You're exactly right because that was Eden. Eden. But they forfeited Eden by their rebellion, Adam and Eve, such as all of us have in them. But if you go, well, that also sounds like heaven. You're exactly right. That's heaven. (laughs) Okay, unblemished, the people of God in the place of God with access to the presence of God. That is where, where, where it's going once again, you see. But if we take those three categories and we come to Esther and we say, okay, how's God doing on his promise? We would say this. Where are the people of God at this time that we're reading this story? Where are they? They're gone. <laughs> the northern kingdom obliterated, the southern kingdom in, in exile. How about the place of God? Because God promised them a place and he said he's going to bring them a place. When you think of the place, think of the promised land. Who's in the promised land now? The, 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 the children of God or somebody else? Answer me. Somebody else, it's under somebody else's rule, you see that. So we got a problem now, wait, where's the, the, the people of God, the place of God? How about access to the presence of God? When I say that, think Jerusalem, think the temple, because the presence of God was mediated where? In the temple. This is where the, the people came to the temple, the blood, and then God was at the temple, and that's where they met. At this time, what's going on at the temple? Nothing. That's exactly right. There's no, there's no sacrifices. There's no mediation. There's no meeting of God. So, so if we looked at it and we said, oh, my goodness. Well, if, if God's intent is a, pe- a people in a place with access to his presence, then it, nothing's happening with that right now. Exactly. Add to it this. God has promised the Messiah would come through his people in his place, You know, etc. So we have a major problem right now in history, don't we? Where's Messiah going to come from? The nation's not there. They're not in the place. They're not worshiping God. So historians call these days, and I did this, by the way, I said this when we studied Ezra, the darkest days in Israel's history. That's what we describe when we talk about this time in history. Now the story is going to unfold um, and it's going to raise a problem. There's going to be this massive problem that's going to be raised. Uh, and, and you know the story, and I'll get to this in, in, in a few moments. But someone's going to, they'll, they'll, someone will rise up and want to destroy the Jews. An enemy is going to rise up that sets about to destroy them. And, and I want you to think about this. That there's a question that arises in the mind of every Jew in this, in this time, whether, whether you're in Babylon still or you're in Jerusalem. And by the way, Esther is still in Babylon um, I don't want to go way too detailed on this, but again, just to give you some sense of context for where this fits. When, when God's people were in exile in Babylon, God arranged such that they could return to Jerusalem after their time in exile, and they returned in three different waves, two, three. The first wave is Ezra chapter 1 through 6, and Zerubbabel takes a group back. And then in Ezra 7 through 10, Ezra takes a group back. Then there's a little break, and then Nehemiah takes a third group back. Are you with me? So that's how the story unfolds. Between Ezra 6 and Ezra 7, there is a 58-year gap. And in that 58-year gap, there is a 10-year window. And that's when the story of Esther is happening. See, so that's where we're right in the middle of these dark days. Esther is still in Babylon. She didn't go back with the first group. That's what you'll see. And that's why the setting, the team did such a wonderful job putting together behind us. We are in the Persian uh, Empire at this time. But the problem's going to arise. This guy's going to seek to destroy them. And every Jew's going to ask this question, God, are you here? Do you care? And can I trust you that even this mess you can use for my good I'm going to tell you, whether you remained in Babylon or you're in Jerusalem, you'll see it in a moment, this problem is going to raise that question for you. That's their historical situation, and I want to bring their historical situation and put it upon us because I think it is our present situation. In many ways, not one for one by any means, but I want you to think about it in these terms. If you have placed your faith in Christ, you're a child of God, please understand, you are not home. You are in exile. You are, you are in a foreign land. We're not home yet. If you know Christ, please understand, you have an enemy of your soul that seeks to destroy you, annihilate you, put you down. That's the truth. So you see their historic, do you see this? Their historical context is ours, quite frankly, as children of God, even in this day. And I would suggest there's no one looking at me right now, no one who has not or will not have life happen, and you're stuck asking, God, are you even here? God, do you even care? And God, can I trust you that this is for my good and your glory? You see, this is life on a fallen planet, very applicable for you and for me. Okay, the historical setting it's a dark day. The story, let's not miss the obvious. It's a story. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end, like all good stories. It's not a poem, so we're not going to interpret it and understand it poetically, per se, unless there's poetry in it. It's not apocalyptic literature, where it's got highly symbolic. We've got to be careful what we do with these numbers and these signs and symbols and dragons and things like that. It's not a New Testament letter that has a very you know, straightforward format that you go through when you interpret a letter. And I'm saying these things, again, if you're new to fellowship, we always say these things at the beginning of a book because we want to understand and apply it biblically in its context. And we got to go, this is a story, what we call, we call a narrative. You don't judge a book by its what? Yeah, and you know you don't start interpreting and judging a story by the first chapter or one chapter in isolation or without the ending, do you? you got to take the whole story and then begin to bring the whole story to each individual part as we interpret and apply it. And that's why I am this morning just going to be a woo, it's shorter than Cliff Notes, but just get the story in our head. And I'm sure it's a story that most, most of us in the room are somewhat familiar with i said it earlier we're in modern day i think we're in modern day iran so that's where we are that's this is happening it's in susa the the citadel or the capital there I picked my daughter up uh two weeks ago on a saturday night she's 14 and she'd been babysitting and on the way home she said dad what are you what are you teaching and i said i'm going i get to introduce the book of esther she said oh, that's great i said yeah i said do you know the story of esther she said yes i know the story of esther i said really okay tell me so on the way home she walked me through the story of Esther. When I got home, I didn't realize Esther had so much to do with vegetables and peas and asparagus. And uh, now she did it that way, but she knew the story, you know. But VeggieTales does a great job, you know. They can't hang Haman because he doesn't have a neck. He's a pea, I think, you know. So they sent him off. I go, oh my gosh, that's not the way the Bible told it, you know. But she knew the story, and I think most of us know the story. And if you don't, it's okay. It'll take you 20 minutes to read this story. I promise you, you will not fall asleep. You will not be bored. It's just a fast-moving, amazing story. I'm going to talk about the beginning, middle, and end very briefly. Chapters 1 and 2 comprise the beginning. So to turn there, Esther chapter 1, and I'm going to grab the first six verses, first five verses of, of Esther chapter 1 follow along as it reads now it took place in the days of ahasuerus the ahasuerus who reigned from india to ethiopia over the 127 provinces in those days king ahasuerus sat on his royal throne which was at the citadel in susa in the third year of his reign he gave a banquet for all of his princes and attendants the army officers of persia and media the nobles and the princes in his provinces being in his presence and he displayed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor of his great majesty for many days, 180 days. When these days were completed, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days for all the people who were present at the citadel in Susa. From the greatest to the least in the court of the garden of the king's Palace. We are introduced right at the beginning of this story to one of the most powerful men on the planet at the time, King Ahasuerus. And by the way, I got to work so hard to pronounce that right, I have to write it out in my notes Ahasuerus, because it's hard to say and you read it, not sure how to do it, but that's how you pronounce it. it. His Greek name is Xerxes. It would be way easier for me to just say Xerxes, 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 but that's not how it is in the New American Standard. And we repeat that name over and over and over again. Get used to it. you always try to think of, achoo! Then it's called Ahasuerus. You know, that's his name. Uh, because the, cha- the book, I think, has 167, 160-something verses. Do you know that the king, Ahasuerus, or the reference to the king, the king's this, king's that, is mentioned over 190 times? It's like, it's like overkill. I mean, why do we keep talking about this guy? And do you know in this book where this king is named this many times, how many times God's name is mentioned? Many of you know this. How many times is God's name mentioned? Say it out loud. Zero. Zero. Can you believe that? we got a book in the Bible where God's not mentioned. Song of Solomon would be the other. What's up with that? What's up with this thing that we're going to talk about, this king, and then the king we know is not mentioned at all? See, this is part of the tension that starts to rise up in the book of Esther. We'll talk about it more next week as we take the first eight chapters. Well, at the end of his banquet, this mighty banquet, and by the way, who, who throws a party for six months? What kind of person? He's got a huge head. He's got a lot of power. He's got a lot of... And that's the truth. He's got everything. And he wants everyone to know. I mean, you throw, you throw a party for six months, you're done, right? No, he wants to go seven more days for the greatest and the least in the capital. I mean, this is overdone, so to speak, right? Well, this is the kind of king he was. At the end of his banquet, he decides he wants the Queen Vashti to come and entertain. Y'all, we don't know exactly what he meant by what he, what he said. You know, come with the crown, like come with the crown only, you know, or... What do you want to show her body? We don't don't really know, but what we know is the king commanded the queen. And the queen said what? We don't know why. We don't have all that together. But she said no, and there's what we know. She lost the crown. And then what ensues is this amazing story of Esther in the sense that they started a Persian beauty banquet, uh, beauty contest, and literally, they gathered all the beautiful, in their eyes, you know, king's assistant's eyes, virgins in the land. They brought them to the capital. They, they put them in their own quarters. And y'all, they spent a year beautifying them. I mean, I guess we could say it, right? And at the end of a year of beautification, the king would request, and they would bring one virgin a night to spend with the, with the king and then, and then they were put off in another place. Now, what happened on that night is exactly what you would think would happen on that night. Why did they beautify him? Why did they send him in there for one night with the king? So the king could have sex with them and then he could decide which one do I like the most and we're going to go through all of them. This is, there is so much wrong, you know, with this story morally, right? But there is so much, you know, biblically and theologically that, that we're going to see come out of the story. But this is exactly what happened Um, Esther uh, is a is a orphaned Jew Uh, she you know gets picked up for the pageant Um, uh, she her she's led or counseled by her older cousin Mordecai on what to do that type of thing guess what she has a one-night stand with the king and it turns out the king liked her best of all and Esther becomes queen that's the beginning of the story this is how it unfolds Um, but there's so much again we'll touch on these things y'all theologically that's happening within the story i mean why you know think about this questions start rising up when you read this you go why esther of all those hundreds why a jewish orphan girl it says when you read the story it says that the 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 king's attendant that esther had favor in his eyes why esther why not sue or somebody else right i mean but it was esther and why why did that that servant show her what to take into the king or, you know, she just got favored treatment all the way through. And you're just sitting there going, what's going on in this story that I can't see? Well, she becomes queen and we pick up the middle of the story in chapters three through eight. There's a lot that goes on here. I'm just going to touch on it briefly. Turn to chapter three. I'm going to read a few verses here. Let me say this. Uh, we're going to see where the, this, this terrible problem arises. And this terrible person, by the way, instigates all this. And uh, when, the Jew, when Jews today, 2016 today, when they read the story of Esther, they will have noisemakers and they will boo and hiss at he who must not be named's name, right? They will boo and hiss when they name his name. Who's the bad guy? Name? Yeah, so I'm going to ask you to do that. Let's go in the story. Let's do a little energy in the story. But boo and hiss, if you think about how, you know, the level of your booing and hissing would be the level degree you understand just how bad This person was. So as I say his name, you you let him have it, okay, as we move through it, and I'll read quickly. After these events, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, yeah, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, and advanced him and established his authority over all the princes who were with him. All the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, yeah, for so the king had commanded concerning him, but Mordecai neither bowed nor paid homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why are you transgressing the king's command? Now it was when they had spoken daily to him, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman yeah, to see whether Mordecai's reason would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. When Haman saw, you're losing energy a little bit, that Mordecai neither bowed nor bowed down or paid homage to him, Haman was, was filled with rage. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him who the people of Mordecai were. Therefore, Haman uh, sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, who were throughout the whole kingdom of ha- Ahasuerus. Now, that's a nice job, by the way. Uh, I, I'm going to give you all the best award for that, you know, out of six times that I've heard do that. So well done on, you know, Hiss and Haman. We, you know, we, we laugh at that. Now, okay, when I say it now, you've got to stop. Okay, we don't do it anymore, because so we'll be doing that all the time. But if, if we, you know, with all laughter and silliness, in, in, there's a sense to which, gosh, you know, if you're a Jew and you understood what this guy did, let me tell you something. It, 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 would, be, you wouldn't, it, it would be despicable to speak of this man's name. This guy's evil, quite frankly. And we'll see that as we go through the story. It, you know, I, I don't know where the phrase overkill came from, but it certainly could have. Uh, Everyone wants to bow to Haman, but Mordecai won't. And so rather, think about this, rather than looking at the one guy who won't do it, you know what, I'm going to put you in jail, I'm going to kill you. Haman goes, okay, I'm going to take out your whole race. Now, this is a true historical story. And we might be going, no, that never happens. But we can't say that, can we? Because we know, we don't have to read our Bibles. We know there's evil afoot that would do that. Seek to destroy a race or races even today. Uh, Haman convinces Ahasuerus that Jews are a bad problem within the kingdom. You know, they do things we don't do, et cetera, et cetera. And so they determined there would be a certain day in the coming year when anyone who's in the kingdom who is, uh, you know, of the kingdom of Persia, who's not Jewish, would kill any Jews that were near them, kill men, man, woman, child, and take their possessions. And by the way, the more you kill, the more money. It's like you'll get paid to do it. This is real. This happened. It's what Haman sought to do to the Jews. Now, the story is going to turn, like all good stories, you know, have tension. And then it turns, and it's going to turn on what. Esther does in her new role as queen. You guys know this. So Mordecai is going to say, Hey, you need to say something to the king. And Esther's going to go, Well, you don't understand. The king has not called for me in 30 days. That means he's not interested in me right now. He doesn't want to see me. And the law of the land is if a person walks into the king's presence, see, we, we, we kind of think of this stuff as fairy tale or didn't work this way. This is the way it worked. You didn't go into the presence of the Persian king unless you were invited. And if you come into his presence uninvited, you're killed. Unless he extends the golden scepter, this is an amazing part of the story. Can't wait till we get to it. In a, it'll be like several weeks before we get to this part of it, but I want you to see this phrase that is probably the most familiar phrase in the Book of Esther. That, that is those of us who know the story, look at chapter four, verse thirteen. Mordecai told them, "There's these eunuchs that are going between Esther and Mordecai, communicating what the other one's saying." Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. Do not imagine that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. Oh, it would be great when we're at that part of the story. The Jews do... Deliverance. Again, you, you, you can read it and see how, but they, they, in a sense, deliver it themselves. And the story ends uh, with another proclamation, only this time it's sent from Mordecai again. So I want you to turn to chapter 9. Just look at, start at verse 20. There's this, this great feast that they're going to institute, and it comes out in this way. Verse 20, chapter 9. They have been delivered, and now they're going to celebrate. Then Mordecai recorded these events, and he sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far. Obliging them to celebrate the 14th day of the month Adar in the 15th day of the same month annually. Because on those days the Jews rid themselves of their enemies. And it was a month which was turned for them from sorrow to gladness and from mourning to a holiday. That they should make them days of feasting and rejoicing and sending portions of food to one another and gifts to the poor. Now, I want you to catch this. Like, like a master storyteller, this story started here and has come full circle. See, that's what a good story does, comes full circle. For the story begins with an atrocious, crazy banquet, doesn't it? Over the top. And now, how is the story ending? With what? A banquet. But let me tell you something. There was this banquet, and then there was this banquet. Totally different reasons, isn't it? There was this king, and there's no mention of God. And see, the story's going to do this. Just watch this in the story. The story's going to keep going like this. It's going to go like this, this, and it's going to go. All these reversals. You're just going to watch this happen over and over again as we go through the story. The feast that they're celebrating is called Purim. I, I, I kind of roll my tongue on that. I'm, I'm not quite right on that per se, but I, I want you to know it. It's spelled P-U-R-I-M. And let me tell you something. The way I want to say it is Purim, but it's not pronounced like that. But it's Purim. And the P-U-R is the word for dice or lot. It was, the, it was customary in, a, in, a, in the Persian Empire at this time. What they would do is at the beginning of the year... Uh, they, would, uh, they would take the pur, the P-U-R, the die, the lot, and they would roll the die, and that, that would determine when certain things are going to happen in the year. So in the first month, they roll the die and go, okay, that's going to be that holiday. We're going to roll the die and we're going to do that feast in. We're going to roll the die and the king's going to do this on this month, you see. Now, we know that when Haman sought to kill the Jews, he needed to determine when's the day. When are we going to kill him? And if you look at three chapter three verse seven, it says he and his officials rolled the p u r the die to determine, and it says they did it day after day. Now this is reading a little between the lines. There's a sense to which it's something along these lines, maybe where it's I want to kill him tomorrow. Well, you got to roll the die. Dang, can't kill him tomorrow. Let's roll it again the next day and see. If we can, I want to kill him next week. Roll it. I can't. And and so they kept rolling the die until the die rolled up and the numbers came. However they interpret. Guess which which month it was going to be determined to kill all the Jews? How far away? The 12th month. You see, that's part of the story. You're going, man, those die. I mean, they keep turning up a certain way. Why didn't they turn up so he could kill them immediately? You tell me, chance, just rolling the dice, or is there something else going on? story's just full of coincidences, you know, just so happened. Uh, sometimes my my computer breaks down at work, you know, we have, we're we set up where we have off-site IT help, you know, et cetera. I don't know if, those, you know, not everyone get this, but some of you in offices have this and your, your computer breaks down and so you call the IT guys and who knows where they are. Ours are not overseas, by the way. They're somewhere in town, but they're not in the, in the office. And, 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 and they need to fix my computer. So I'm sitting there, and the guy says, you know, okay, I'll, I'll take care of it. And next thing I know, the cursor's moving on my screen, right? It's possessed. Something's in, somebody's in there, and then there's type going across and everything. And it's, it's that weird feeling, like, like things are happening, and I'm not typing, and my computer's typing in front of me. It's like chess pieces are moving, and there's no hand that's moving the chess pieces this is the story of Esther. The historical setting, the story, and then the lesson. I'm gonna give you two, but they're intertwined as you'll see. There's a theological lesson, okay? So here's where rubber meets the road, and this is, I'm gonna grab these two because they, this is gonna be true all the way through the story, this, these lessons. There'll be many more, trust me, as we go through this. Theological lesson. The, the, the story uh, is held together. And expresses a doctrine we call the doctrine of providence. Okay, the doctrine of providence is Latin pro vide, pro to see before, to see and then provide, to foresee. But the doctrine of providence. Man, it's a multifaceted diamond. We can look at it so many different ways and get these little nuances. I'll touch on some of that. I'm going to give you three ways to think about the doctrine of providence right now theologically. And in theology, we want to be very precise. Words really matter in theological statements. So let me give you some. Don't try and write this down, it'll be on the website. Uh, Karen Job, uh, I think it's Job, it might be Job E. But in her excellent commentary on Esther, she writes this regarding providence. You'll see this on the screen. When we speak of God's providence, we mean that God, in some invisible and inscrutable way, governs all creatures, actions, and circumstances through the normal and the ordinary course of human life, without the intervention of the miraculous, end quote. Every word matters in there. I especially love this. You know, invisible, you don't see it. Inscrutable, You can't figure it out. It's inscrutable, but it's true, and it's invisible, so to speak. That begins to help us understand providence, God's working out of his purposes. If we went to the Bible, uh, Mandy read some verses, Isaiah 46, that speak of God's control of all things. He knows the beginning from the end, all this. We could go to Psalm 135. Look at Psalm 135, 5 and 6. This is on the screen as well. Psalmist says, for I know that the Lord is great. Our Lord is greater than all gods. He does whatever he pleases in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the depths. That's what the psalmist said. This is what is true of God. He does as he pleases. Look, you can go as high as you can go. You can go as deep as you can go. You can go as far as you can go, as wide as you can go. Wherever you go, he does as he pleases. y'all this is providence sovereignty these are these are are hard truths now they're they're hard and they got some hard edges but i'm gonna tell you something when we understand them biblically in their context they are so hopeful when held well by faith but i'm not gonna i'm not gonna argue with you and go boy that does not raise some questions Well, well they can and they do I often go to the Westminster Shorter Catechism. I love going there for you know, theological truth. I'm talking about men who formulated these doctrines hundreds of years ago with careful thought. Every word mattered. Uh, Westminster Shorter Catechism, I think this is question 10. What are God's works of providence? Catechisms, when you ask the question, then you answer it. It's how you teach, how I used to teach kids, you know, and teach adults even can today. What are God's works of providence? God's works of providence are His most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. Now, we believe the Bible teaches that. There are some big words in there, but you know what the two biggest words are, I think, for us on our end of it? All and all. Because, see, you can remove the alls and you kind of can take it and go, okay, God's got a lot of control. God's lot. But when you go all and all, And all, you got some questions in your head right now, but what about, but when, what, what? See, it, it can raise those questions. But this is what the doctrine of providence teaches. If you are a Christian, let me tell you just one implication. If you have placed your faith in life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, in other words, you believe Jesus died on the cross for your sins, was buried, raised again, and that he did it for you, you're trusting what he did, and you are a son or daughter of the king, Child of God, please know this. The doctrine of providence assures us you are never where you are by accident. And you are never facing what you face by chance. Not according to providence. I know oftentimes people get Confused, or there's just reason to be confused around sovereignty and providence. So, so let me say this this is, this is way deeper than, than me, and so it's going to be rather shallow, but I'm going to give you how to kind of keep these maybe in some categories that are helpful. When you think of God's sovereignty and providence, yes, they overlap. They're very similar. I think I, I tend to think of it this way and sovereignty, th- that He's sovereign, it's a, it's a ruler term. It's God's, God rules, it's His domain to rule all, and He's in control. And how in the sense of how, that, how does he do that? The works of providence. See, his works of providence is how he expresses that sovereignty. That's one way uh, that we can think about this, okay? That's the theological lesson, God's works of providence. Here's the practical lesson, okay, for us. And again, there's so many that we'll have as we teach through this. I'm gonna grab it from uh, Karen uh, Job's uh, definition where she said, God's works of providence is through the normal. And the ordinary course of human life without the intervention of the miraculous, end quote. Now, someone said to me last week, they said, well, gosh, you know, God does miracles. Are you saying that's not in his providence? No, that that would fit within his providence. But what I'm trying to say here and what she's saying is that how God works out his sovereign rule, how, how his providence works itself out is I'll use this term. She's not. It's, it's generally not through miraculous. But if he does something miraculous, he certainly can. And when I say miraculous, I'm talking about intervening in nature, suspending the law of gravity, acting, and then putting the law of gravity back together. So You know what I'm saying? This is supra, beyond nature, miracles. That's what he's talking about, that his works of providence don't generally work out that way. Think about the story of Esther. In Esther's story, God is silent. In the story of Esther, God is invisible. (laughs) It's like he's not there, you see, in the story. There are no miracles. There's no supernatural. There's no parting of the Red Sea. There's no fire that comes down and swallows up, you know, people. There's no miraculous supernatural intervention. What do we make of that? Here's Here's what I think we make of it. This is how God Normally works. That's what we make of it. Now, if you're one of those people that go, "No, I, I need a miracle." Join the club. Me too. But do you understand that God does not work? Mer- and when I use that word, you know what I'm saying. There's miracles happen all the time, but supernaturally intervening and in, in suspending nature miracles. I, I wish I had some of those too, but but I, I don't. Do you understand, y'all? Most of the people who lived in these pages, so let's go through thousands of years of history, most of the people that lived the Bible never saw a miracle. We we forget that. We think, no, 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 man, they saw Jesus. They saw the waters part in the Red Sea. Well, some of them did. How many, Lloyd? Just a tiny fraction. But all the other millions, you know what they did? They lived ordinary lives, through ordinary days, through hardship and death and pain. And they had God's revelation. They said to trust. You know what I'm saying? That's how they live their life, and that's how we live ours. God can do whatever he pleases. Yes, God can, look, God can reverse the spin of the world way better than Superman, by the way. He can do it like you and I blow out a candle. I mean, he can do whatever he wants. This is not how he works out his providence generally. And even think of the story. What did I say at the very beginning about historical setting? How dark was it? How bad was it? How, how hopeless was it, were these days? How, how hopeless were they? Seriously about as bad as it could get. And if anyone, you would think, I don't know, human thinking, if if there was ever a time that they needed a miracle, if there was ever a time you'd think God said, look, let me take you guys out to the river and let me watch watch me stop it. You'd think he would, but he didn't do anything like that in Esther, Ezra, Nehemiah. He just, they just kind of kept plodding along. And how about this? God put the right person in the right place. And, and, and they had an opportunity to either trust God or not trust God and just kept going, you see. That's, that's the life of faith for them and for you and I. I wrote it this way in my notes. The silence of God in Esther is consistent with the message of Esther. God is working out his purposes as he normally works out his purposes, silently and invisibly through ordinary people who in ordinary and extraordinary circumstances choose to trust him. There's the message. God, God God, is still put... This is what I want to go. God is still to this day putting people in specific places with opportunities to trust him. And if I'm looking at you, please know this. I mean you. I mean you. I mean you. I mean you. Literally, literally he still... You mean he's still doing this? He's still putting like like the way he put Esther as queen. That's over this craziness. Yes, he's putting you. And he's putting you. And he's putting he's put you. He's put you. He's still putting his people in specific places in order to, to trust him in an ordinary thing. You see, I mean, it's like it infuses life to me. It infuses life with everything matters. You know, we got these summer mission trips coming up. Whatever you know, you don't have to wait till summer to go on a mission trip. You wake up every day, you feet hit the ground, you're on mission. You're, you're literally where you are for a reason. And that ordinary day unfolds with you trusting God. He's using that for his glory. And you're good. I'll say it again. You're never where you are by accident. And you are never facing what you face by chance. R.B. Kuyper. He was a Dutch-born, uh, but a Reformed theologian. Um, President of Calvin College at one time, I picked up a, a, a statement that he had written somewhere and I had it i 've had it in my file for years, and I liked it because he he described. Um, the struggle that we often have with, he, with sovereignty. You know, he, he, was at, he said, you know, when I'm often asked a question, I mean, come on, is, is there such a thing as divine election? Are you chosen before the foundation of the world or not? Or if that's true, then I don't have to do anything because God's going to get whoever he wants in heaven and free will and God, you know, it's, how, do you, how do you handle these thing, two things? And he said, I like to think of it, and he said, I like to think of it as, as, as a rope that goes up into heaven, it goes over a pulley and it comes back down and there's two strands. And so I'm going to ask you, I want you to imagine in your mind's eye that I'm standing here and there, there are two ropes that I'm holding, two ropes in front of me, but it goes up and it goes over a pulley you can't see and comes back down. There's two ropes, two strands coming, coming down. Now I've adapted his illustration because I'm gonna call it the, the two strands of God's providence, okay? Similar sovereignty and providence. But imagine these two ropes, you know, there's, there's, there's the one strand that's God is in control. He rules, he governs, all things, all his creatures, right? This is God is in control. If you were to grab that strand, please know this. You would be grabbing a truth, but not the whole truth. And uh, if, if, if the winds were blowing and, and, and you needed hope not to be blown off, I'm telling you, you could hold that rope, this strand, and what happens when the wind blows? You could go off the stage and the rope would keep going. If the waters were rising and I needed to stay above those waters, I could grab that rope all I wanted and it would just be... I'm going nowhere, right? Or you could grab this strand and this strand would represent my choices matter. I'm in a hard place. I better get out. But if I just choose the one strand and not the other, then I can pull all day long, right? And I will not rise above the floodwaters. The wind will still blow me. Do you have that picture in your mind? You grab either one. And so in Providence, what the what the Christian does, we take the Bible seriously and we can't deny. We can't, you can't deny. You can't take it if it says this and it says this. You can't take this one and deny that one or take this one and deny that one. You got to take them both. And when you and I take both strands, grab them. And when the waters rise, let me tell you, and you're going, you know what? God's in control and in this. And yes, I, you know, I, I, I'm required to be faithful in this. Then boom, I could stand back. I could run out and I would swing over your head because it would hold. Do you see that? Now here's the thing to keep in mind of this picture. How many ropes am I holding? No one wants to say it out loud. One! But there's two strands. In the, from, a, from an earthly perspective, you know, I would go, I'm holding two. That's right. We would do that because there are two strands. What's one. This is, you know, I can't see this. Let me tell you something. When you grab both strands, I'm going to tell you this. You're, you will not have all your questions answered. Don't go there. Oh, Lloyd, that illustration was great. Now I have all my questions answered about free will and so No, you don't. No, you don't. No, you won't. But I'm going to tell you something. You can hold both, and you can say this, holding both. God, you are here. You care, and you can use even this for my good and your glory. You see that? You can can rest in faith in God's presence with you. I'm going to tell you something. It's not going to answer the questions you have about it. I think something matters more than having your questions answered. I think hope matters more, that hope God is who he says he is. He's who he's expressed himself to be in the Bible and in the book of Esther. So what? Why don't you bow your head and let's do this. Just a quiet moment of prayer. You think about this amazing story of Esther, just in this overview I've given. You think about this doctrine of providence and what it means to us and for us, even with the questions that it leaves unanswered. What is God inviting you to trust him for and with? And it may be even your life and you're thinking about something ordinary. Maybe God's inviting you to trust him with that ordinary thing, with a step of faith. Would you talk to God for a moment? amen and amen let's stand i'll send you out gone a little over forgive me let me send you out with this word it's going to be your word to each other uh, and to to the lord i'm going to ask you the question bring up the greater the shorter catechism and i'm going to ask you the question i'm going to ask you to say out loud the answer and you say out loud why because you want to affirm it to god out loud you want to affirm it to yourselves and you know what we affirm it to each other that This is what holds us, God's works of providence. I'll ask the question, what are God's works of providence? You respond. God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful. Amen. Before you leave, turn and greet someone nearby. Just say hello to them, and then you can get your kids.